Stories. Everybody's got them, and we can learn from each other. History can be traced through letters and writings, but the one thing that has remained throughout the generations is the oral tradition. Oral history is one attempt to pass along the stories, tales, musings, and remembrances of one family for the benefit of listeners for generations to come. Join us now for this episode of Oral History with Jeff Zulkowski. Thanks so much for being here today. Uh, I want to apologize for having missed an episode. For those of you who are faithful listeners, uh, realized an, an, that an episode should have dropped on January 1st of 2023, two weeks after the most recent episode, Christmas Memories Part 2, and my apologies for that. Um, holidays and a trip to Colorado kind of got in the way of all of that, and then uh, time rolled around, and it's now... January 15th when I'm recording this, so my apologies for having missed an episode, but this will be the fourth episode of season two, and it will be the 30th episode overall of oral history, and with Colorado in mind, we turn our attention toward a little town in south-central Colorado, this time called Florence. Florence is the town that I grew up in. Um, my father was born in a community just a little bit outside of Florence called Rockville, Colorado. My mom was born in the county seat for Fremont County, where it resides, and she was born in Canyon City. And they made a life in Pueblo, Colorado for a time, but then settled in Florence and spent the majority of their lives there. In fact, the house that they bought for uh, a somewhere under $10,000, like $8,000, I believe, back in the uh, late 1950s is still there. And it's still in the same place and almost looks exactly like it did when we lived there. It's been painted, um, some things have been improved, some things have been taken out, but for the most part, everything still looks the way it did when I moved out in my mid-20s back in the 1990s. And so we had the privilege, as I said, my wife and my daughter and I of being uh, flown to Colorado by my family, and they had not seen us in Colorado for 10 years. And so they just wanted to spend some time with us. So we flew out there January 1st and spent some time. And it was a wonderful, restful time of just being with family, playing games, uh, eating lots of good food, just spending time together, spending quiet time alone. Um, it was it was great. Um, in the midst of that, we had the opportunity on one Saturday evening to most of us go to my hometown of Florence. Now, if you don't know where Florence is located, and most people don't, um, if you were to draw a line down the middle of the state, you were going to draw it right through the Colorado Rockies. And everything to the west of the Rockies is very mountainous. Um, that's where all the skiing takes place in Colorado. Everything east of the Rockies is very much like Kansas. It's very flat. And right along that ridge, down the middle of the state, is what's called the, the Front Range. And that's where the majority of the population in Colorado lives, in one of three cities right along the Front Range. From north to south, Denver, the Denver metropolitan area, one of the fastest growing areas in Colorado. But an hour south of that is Colorado Springs, Colorado. And that may sound familiar because the uh, U.S. Air Force Academy is there, NORAD, the the North American Air Defense Command is there, and Fort Carson in the uh, 
in the army, there are bases there as well as uh, as well as a bunch of other things. That's where my f family is now is in the Colorado Springs metropolitan area. About forty miles south of that is a town called Pueblo, and that's where, as I said, my parents spent part of their early life together. I also lived there for a time when I was working for KTSC TV. You can go back and listen to that episode. But if you were to draw a triangle from Colorado Springs to Pueblo and then west, due west from Pueblo into the foothills, 40 miles west of Pueblo is a little area called Fremont County, and there's my hometown. And it's 40 miles northwest into Colorado Springs, so it's pretty much a perfect triangle. And uh, Florence has always been a small town. Um, uh, urban sprawl of Colorado Springs and Pueblo has not reached that part of the state yet. It's still uh, surrounded by farmland and, and other things. And it was a wonderful little town to grow up in. In fact, I think the the city motto at one point was the the, the greatest little town in Colorado or something of that nature. And they, they really thrived on that. And, and it was very small for, for the longest time. It has grown like other places in the United States. It has grown, but it's just been due to um, kind of a reimagining of my hometown. Um, Fremont County, that county that we lived in, has always been kind of a hub for one industry. A lot of, a lot of, Places in Indiana, farms are all there is, and and other places in Pennsylvania, coal is all there is, and and manufacturing in Cleveland, where we're at, hospitals are the big, uh, the the big main employers here in Cleveland. But in Florence and Fremont County in particular, prisons were the big deal. Um, in fact, there are fifteen operating prisons, fourteen of them. By, uh, owned by the state of Colorado, and one a federal penitentiary known as FCI or Federal Correction Institute Florence or ADX Florence is there as well. Now, that didn't come along until the mid-1980s to mid-1990s, but that particular uh, prison is the home of some of the most notorious and most difficult prisoners in the world. First of all, they're federal prisoners. Um, people like the Unabomber, um, Timothy McVeigh, um, Terry Nichols, the two folks that bombed the Oklahoma City building uh, decades ago, El, Sha El, El Wapo or El Chapo, um, one of the Mexican drug cartel um, heads, they all have spent time in my hometown. Now, ADX Florence is also very notor notorious for being uh, criticized for how prisoners are handled there. They spend 23 hours a day in a cell. They never see outside of the prison. There are no windows for them to look out and see mountains or anything. They can look up one hour a day when they go to a courtyard in the middle of the prison when they have recreation time, but otherwise they're kept in isolation in their cells for 23 hours a day. And that's caused a lot of human rights groups to really speak out about that. But they're also the most difficult to contain people and difficult to contain their influence. And that's why they're there. But prisons have always been part of the culture of Fremont County. Um, in fact, years of growing up just 
maybe five miles from a majority of the state prisons, whenever there was a, a like an escape from the prison, everybody in Florence just kind of chilled because there was the belief that whoever was that had escaped is going to immediately try to get somewhere other than close. They're going to run for miles and try to get to Pueblo or get to Colorado Springs or get to Denver or get out of the state. And that was true 99% of the time. Um, I recall one situation in my hometown. It was in the mid-1980s and I was uh, carrying mail for the United States Postal Service. I was the carrier on a, a little city route and we got to work one Saturday morning after there had been a, a an escape from the prison the night before. In fact, this particular escape was unusual because the prisoners didn't leave Fremont County. They came right to downtown Florence and, in fact, had a shootout with police outside of a high school f basketball game. They had to kind of keep everybody in the high school gym and things went on outside and, and then it kind of dispersed and I got up the next morning to go to work at the postal service and I get there and I'm one of only four people in the building at that point in the morning. Actually, when I first got there, one of only three, it was me and, and two ladies who were, uh, one was a clerk and one was a rural carrier. And when we got there, everybody was just a little bit nervous about what had happened the night before. Now, the post office in my hometown is almost dead center of town. It's a half a block from the, the main intersection with the stoplight. And it's uh, the type of building that you would recognize in any small town, a uh, two-story building, uh, blonde brick built in probably the 1960s. And you kind of went in the front if you were a patron, you went in the back if you were an employee, and then there were doors on either side. One of those doors led to an upstairs area that only the Secret Service could enter. The Secret Service or the postal inspectors could go up there and they could observe what was going on in the post office without entering the building uh, being noticed. And that was just part of their security. The other entrance was a basement entrance on the south side of the property and it was never open. It was always locked day and night, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It was always locked. So that particular morning, everyone being just a little bit nervous about what had happened the night before, uh, two of us decided to kind of walk the perimeter and check the doors and make sure everything was secure. And we get to that downstairs door on the south side of the building and the door is unlocked. And this young lady and I, we just kind of stopped in our tracks and we immediately uh, backed up from the building, got everybody else out of the building, called the police from our little town, and they came and they swept the building as much as they could because, again, parts of it are secure. But they swept that basement and other parts of the building and they didn't find anything. And it turns out that the custodian had just accidentally left the door unlocked. Of all the nights to leave a door unlocked, that was the night that it was left unlocked. But there were no no prisoners inside. It was rather uneventful, but it was still kind of concerning just based on what had happened and, and the thought that these two escaped convicts were still in town. So I carried my route that day and the other the other carriers carried their routes. And it turns out that the two guys had actually holed up a little bit south of town in a in a, an abandoned house and they were caught a few days later and when i said before that prisoners would typically 
get out of Dodge, so to speak, that would be the cliche, they would get out of Fremont County. This was that 1% of the against the 99% where they chose not to leave. And I think they probably thought if they could hang out closer, close by, the same thought would be, well, they must have left and, and then they would have an opportunity to leave. But they were caught a few days later. But that's just, I mean, that's like one story out of 30 years of my life in Florence. And n no other situation rose to that kind of concern. I mean, if you if you Google Florence, you're going to find several things. You're going to come across uh, a couple of young guys on one of these crime shows, true crime shows that uh, killed a, a sheriff's deputy um, as they were being uh, escorted away from uh, kind of a hostage situation. That was, again, an anomaly. Um, you'll, If you Google a little bit deeper, you'll find that Florence was the setting of a particular movie that I believe Netflix produced several years ago called Our Souls at Night, starring Robert Redford and Jane Fonda, about uh, two elderly people who found comfort and care in each other's presence. And um, it was set in a little town. And that town, although not named that in the show, was actually my hometown. In fact, a number of the exterior scenes were shot there. Um, some scenes during a parade were shot there. One particular scene where Robert Redford is visiting with a number of his friends in a coffee shop, large glass window. You can look out the glass window. That's the hotel one block west of that main intersection in Florence. And it so Florence has been, yes, prisons, big deal. Um, also, quite a bit of film work has been done around Fremont County. A number of movies were shot there back in the 70s and 80s. Movies like Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox were shot at a place called Buckskin Joe. You can listen to previous episodes where I talked about that. And just, it it's a your typical small town, but with a little bit of a national flair, um, if you happen to dig deeply enough on, on Google. But my time in Florence, my life was there from the beginning. Um, Florence Hospital, which no longer exists, it's the city hall. I was born in that hospital. My mom worked there as a nurse's aide. My dad worked for a company called New Music Company, which was a, and you can listen to previous episodes as well, um, it was a, a an organization that took care of vending machines. He he ran uh, a route all over the county um, in multiple directions and even close to Colorado Springs, close to Pueblo, out west uh, through the canyons um, of Highway 50 and all over. Um, but they were located there in Florence as well. And that was my life. I grew up in a little house about a block from the city park and the swimming pool. And again, if you listen to previous episodes, you'll know that I led a fairly sheltered life. My mom had what she felt was a threat made by uh, a cousin at one point in our lives. And I was not allowed as a little kid to really cross the highway. It's a highway. It's a two-lane road, Highway 115, to the east of our home, and I wasn't allowed to cross the next cross street over. 
Um, and I didn't know why as a kid. I just knew my parents loved me and they wanted to protect me. So they built boundaries and I obeyed the boundaries when I obeyed them. And when I didn't, I got in trouble. So like most kids. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about this little house that I grew up in, it was it was small. Again, in previous episodes, I mentioned that we were poor and we didn't know it. It was a six-room house, um, living room in the front, bedroom immediately off to the right, a kitchen behind the living room, another bedroom off to the right, a bathroom in one corner of the house and another bedroom in the back. And we shared that house. Five of us lived in that home and we didn't know it was too small. We just knew that we had to share bedrooms and everybody had to fight for the bathroom and things of that nature. But I love. I have fond, fond memories of growing up there. I shared some of these memories with my sister and brother-in-law when he, when we were there. I recall one Christmas we had asked for certain things, and one of the really popular toys that year was a, a series of plastic dolls that when you smacked them on the head, they would do different things. If you got the football guy, he would kick a football, and you could kick it through this little plastic goalpost. If he was a basketball guy, he would shoot a jump shot. Well, we were as a family into hockey. And so my parents bought me the hockey guy and little plastic puck, little net, and you were supposed to bang the guy on the head and he would slap shot the puck into the net. Well, just like every other kid who finds purposefulness in sometimes things other than the actual toy, like sometimes you'll give a kid a, a gift and he has more fun with the box than the toy, especially when they're younger. We found more joy from the little plastic puck than we did from the guy who hit the puck and the little net that came with it. And what we did as a family, my brother and my sister and I in particular, is we would clear all the furniture off of the floor in the living room and kind of play diagonally across the living room. We would play hockey with wooden spoons and this little plastic puck. And it was vicious. It was... Uh, just like hockey, um, hard hits and slap shots and uh, thankfully no broken bones or broken furniture or broken glass. But we had a lot of fun in that house. And again, it wasn't big, but we had a lot of fun playing games like that. My brother and I would play Nerf basketball in that middle bedroom. And it was, there was a doorway into the kitchen on one side of the room. There was a a double pane window on the other side and we would hang nerf hoops up over either side and again those got rough and tumble and you would fall into you know hopefully not into the glass on one end but you would kind of disappear out the door into the kitchen if you made a running layup on the other end and we just had a lot of fun we were a close-knit family we were very tight and we had fun in that house and as we went back this past week to Colorado we, again, made the trek there one day. We went to go have dinner at a restaurant, but we went to just spend some time walking around this little community. Like I said, it wasn't, it was just your typical small town community in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. But in the 90s and early 2000s, it kind of reimagined itself into kind of the antique capital of Colorado. And many, many antique shops and little coffee spots and little restaurants and bigger restaurants kind of popped up all over town. And it's about three blocks of just some of the most unique places to visit. So we went for that purpose, but also to just spend some time 
reminiscing, walking the streets, talking about, oh, well, I remember that's where our, my dad's friend Gene Roder lived. He was the one who gave us bricks with money taped to it one Christmas. And that's where Irene Giuliani lived. And she had the coolest uh, Corvette in town. Everybody wanted to ride in the Corvette if you were um, royalty in one of the parades and you would get to sit in her Corvette convertible. Her sister Rose lived across the street and the Cornellas lived there and, and Jimmy Piccoli, my dad's friend, lived there and, and my friend my sister's friend Susie lived there and on and on. And my friend Greg lived a couple blocks down and it was just fun. And so we went back and we kind of walked all these spaces and we looked around and we remembered all of the the people that lived there and the people that we loved and we turned the corner on a, on our street and we walked down and the first thing i noticed was this big elm tree that was in our neighbor's yard and it has since been cut off at about eight feet up and it's trying to regrow but that eight foot trunk is still there and in the front of it facing the street is this little notch where we as kids would sit every one of us my sister sat there and played dolls my brother sat there and played i sat there and played with my matchbox cars that was the place and it was just like it was built for a little kid and it's still there but as we passed that we saw the house and one of the first things I noticed, because I've only seen it in Google Maps recently, and it was still painted exactly like my dad had painted it in 1990 in Google Maps. It had been painted bright yellow, um, the top half. The bottom half is this rock on three sides of the house. And where that rock came from was my family. We would, um, as a family, we would go rock hunting and we would drive out to an area where my dad grew up, what he, what he called the chicken ranch out in Rockville. And we would go and we would wander up into the hills and we would look for rocks. And my dad had this idea in his head to put these rocks, which he called moss rock, because at one time they had moss on them. He would look for the perfect rocks and we would come running down the hill and go, Dad, is this a good one? He's like, well, it's okay. It's a little too round. I'd have to chisel too much off the back look for flatter ones. And so we'd go back and we'd look for more. How about this one? Dad, oh, that one's perfect. Go put it in the back of the station wagon. And we would do this several nights a week as a family. And we would come back with the back end of the station wagon, almost dragging the ground as we drove home. And we would unload all the rock. And my dad put every piece of rock on that house with care. He put down tar paper. He put up chicken wire. He would put concrete up and then he, as he started at the bottom and worked his way up he would put a metal tab in between each rock so it was so well constructed that I think only one rock has really fallen off in the past 30 or 40 years and we talked to the homeowner about that and and they're they're you know 40 years past this fad I guess it was a fad back then and so they're kind of growing old, growing weary of it, but it is what it is, and it's there, and it's lasting, so they really can't do anything about it. And the, the husband of the couple that live there, his name is Nick, he came and met us at the back of his truck, and he caught sight of me, and he looked at me, and he goes, I know you. And he said, don't tell me. And I, he said, Michael, right? And I said, no, um, Jeff. And he 
I said, you may have maybe think of my, thinking of my brother, Mark. He goes, oh, yeah, Zulkowski. And he, he immediately latched on. Nick is somebody that grew up in a space between my brother and my sister in that six-year gap. My sister went to school with one of his sisters. I went to school with another one of his sisters. So we've known this family forever. Like the, We picked out the house where they lived and pointed it out to my niece and her husband who were with us. But he kind of latched on and we just got to talking and we were talking about all of the memories we had about this house. And if you've ever gone home, everything seems smaller than it did when you were home. You were a little kid and everything seemed normal size. Now, as you go back as an adult, everything seems just a little bit smaller. And I looked at that front yard and it just seemed smaller, but he had grown grass in the front yard and we got to talking about the grass because, and I I believe I've talked about this in a previous episode. My dad decided at one time in our in our early years there. My I was probably in my maybe second grade, seven years old, something like that. He was going to fertilize the yard, and he did it with pure nitrogen pellets, and he put them on so thick that it not only killed the grass, it killed the dirt. They sent people from Colorado State, from the agriculture office to come and test the soil. And the soil was devoid of like microbes and organisms, like it couldn't support anything. It was the, the finest, siltiest dirt you would ever find. So here on this little str one block of this town in Florence, you had, you know, decent yard, decent yard, you know, okay yard, nice yard, beautiful yard next to us. And then this dirt lot in front of the Zilkowski household. And it didn't bother us. Hey, I didn't have to mow the yard, but it also was the gathering point for every kid in our neighborhood because we could play anything we wanted in the front yard. We played a lot of plastic baseball in that front yard. We would set up home plate kind of right in the front of the house, a little bit to the right of the doorway. That was home plate. First base was the last square on the crossing sidewalk. Second base was out on the street. Third base was the other last uh, square of the sidewalk cro on crossing in front of the house. And then home. And it didn't matter. You could run in our yard. You could slide into, you know, first base or whatever you wanted because we didn't have any grass to protect and my parents didn't care. And so we just had the house where everybody wanted to play plastic baseball and we enjoyed it so much. So we got to talking to Nick about that and Nick, he looked at me and he goes, there is still just one patch in the center of my yard where I cannot get grass to grow. And I told him, I said, well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to blame my dad for that. And we told him the story about that. And so it gave him some answers about why they couldn't grow grass there. And and we talked to the his wife and the she we had pointed out there were trees in the backyard that had gotten removed by my sister-in-law and a tree on the side that I had planted, but had planted too close to the house and she had to pay to have it removed and just on and on and reminisced, of, went in the backyard, looked around, talked about the garage and what the garage was for us growing up, which was for years it had an old uh, vehicle in it and it was a place to store junk and then eventually it got cleared out. But dirt floor, um, you know, it just, this is the home we grew up in. And it was so much fun to just go and talk about it and reminisce and remember you know, that's where dad put the first air conditioner in the front window of the house. And it was an actual air conditioner. In Colorado, you have dry air 
um, humidity in the teens. And so he brought a refrigerated air conditioner home and it wouldn't do anything for cooling the house. So we had to put a blanket up over the door of the living room and keep the doors closed. And basically we had one room in the house that was cool. You would walk out of maybe 70 degree coolness, 60 degree coolness to the rest of the house where it was 90 degrees. And again, this was normal. We just, we didn't care. We didn't have central air. He put a swamp cooler in years later, put it in the center room. It was the cross point of the house. And it really, if, if you're from an area where it's humid, you don't know what a swamp cooler is. It's basically uh, a box with uh, straw filters on three sides and water is pumped into those filters and a fan blows that water cooled air into the house. That's what works in Colorado. And when he finally did that, our whole house was cool. And um, it just was what it was. It was our beautiful little house where we grew up. We were maybe five blocks from the elementary school. And I remember fondly every teacher. I think at some point in the future, I'll do an episode where I talk about every teacher that I had all the way through school and some of the, the loves that I had, the loves of my life in kindergarten, first, second, and third grade. And um, But it was, it was an easy walk, although for whatever reason, and it's probably part of my mom's protection of me, that I didn't walk home from school, even though it was only five blocks away. But my sister and my brother did. And we were only four blocks from the high school. We were, you know, everything was close and everything was tight knit. And that's where you had your first job at the Florence Husky, which was a, a drive-in restaurant. My sister was a, a car hop and I cooked in this little, in this little diner. And I, my real first job was with my dad in a new music company, but that was my first job of my own. I had other first jobs. I carried mail, as I mentioned, at the for the postal service. I worked for the city newspaper, um, just on and on. Like you remember your hometown, typically either fondly or not. There's there's not a lot of room in between. My my brother doesn't really remember Florence as being a fond place. It was more of a place where life kind of got out of control and the friends that he had, there were just difficulties. But for me, it was a wonderful place. I was loved. I was cared for. I was nurtured. And yes, some stuff went on. But for the most part, you were safe. You didn't lock your door at night. You... Um, could walk down to the corner to the to the little store and buy penny candy and bring it home. You could, um, with permission, walk beyond the ends of the block. You could ride your bike in town. You could do a lot of things that nowadays parents feel less apt to do with their kids because the world has changed. But at that time, it was just a, a wonderful little town to grow up in. And as we kind of close our time together today, I just want to encourage you to spend some time thinking about where you grew up. What was it like? Remember the rooms. Imagine the the games that were played in the parlor or the kitchen. Remember the 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 fights that you would have with your brother or sister. Remember all of those things. Just take some time and go through, map out in your head where all of those rooms were. Think about the, the times that you spent and the stories that you have to tell because there's stories that are worth remembering, some of them, some of them are difficult, 
but they're they're worth kind of sharing with somebody either for uh, just celebration or for release. So spend some time and just kind of go through your hometown, go through your the house you grew up in and just remember all of those things. And if they're difficult times, remember them and kind of deal with them and talk to somebody about them because those are really things that you need to spend some time talking about and not internalize. But also spend some time on the good things that happened. I guarantee there were some good things. And, and just remember those and, and celebrate those and, and call a family member and just say, hey, was I right about this? Was this room here and didn't we used to have this? And, and just spend some time remembering those things. Now, as always, I wanna give you another challenge in all of this, not only to remember where you grew up, but to, to remember from where you've come. And if you're a believer in Christ, you can remember what your life was like before you knew Jesus personally. You can remember the things that bothered you, the things that were difficult in your life. You can remember the, the bad thoughts that you thought. And again, that's part of your past. You, you, have, you can't run away from those things. But at the same time, you can remember them and be thankful that God saved you from that stuff. I was a very fearful kid. I was uh, a very lustful young man. I was a very um, ornery kid. And, and God rescued me from some of that. I'm still pretty ornery. You can ask my wife, you can ask my sister, but um, and you can ask my daughter. But God rescued me across the hood of a car in 1983 in a discussion with my girlfriend at the time. And that night I went inside and gave my life to Christ in the presence of my sister, my girlfriend, and my girlfriend's mom. And, and my life changed at that point. Now, if you don't know Christ and you've never had this kind of an experience, I would ask you to remember your life, what it was like, and see if now it could be better. Because I guarantee Christ can change you and make your life better. The things that you're dealing with, the hurts that you're holding on to, the, the things that you're using to try, and try to dull the ache in your heart, all of those things can be taken care of by Christ. Really, that, that ache in your heart is something that God has placed within you so that you can seek Him and come to know Him. So if you don't know Christ, I would pray that today would be the day of your salvation, that you would open your heart and your life to Christ and say, I know that I've done some awful things in my past, and I know that you can take care of those, and you can save me from that, and you can save me for something and I know that Jesus did what he did on the cross for me, and I accept that, and I turn my life over to you, and I want you, Father God, to change me and make me somebody new. And if you are a believer, celebrate what God has done in your life. Celebrate how he has changed you, and share those things with your family as well. They need to see, hey, I was once like this, and God changed that in me and made me like this. So as we close today, I just want to pray for you. Remember your hometown. Remember the people that you grew up with. Remember God can change who you are. So let's pray. 
Father God, thank you for this time together today. Thank you for your love and your care for us. Thank you that you are involved in the most intimate, the most minuscule moments of our lives. And for me, it was all that time in that house in Florence. And you were using that to craft and mold and shape me and draw me to yourself. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for my family. I thank you for my sister, my brother-in-law. They're bringing us to Colorado. They're loving and caring for us. I thank you for the memories we have of that house, of growing up and being kids. And Lord, I thank you for how you saved me in that little town and how you drew me to yourself and how you changed the course of my life. And Father, I pray for those who are listening today that they would remember with fondness, they would remember maybe with difficulty, but they would remember that they are here to bring you honor and glory. So draw them to yourself, open their eyes and their ears to the truth of who you are and what you want to accomplish in their lives. We lift this all up to you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here. Two weeks from now, we'll cover a couple, one of two things. We'll either go into this kind of grade school, all the teachers and all my loves, or we might dive back into Go Sports Part 2. I haven't decided yet, but it'll be one of those two things. So it's so good to spend time with you today. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Aural History. This has been a production of Z Media and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. Join us again next time.